So uh, we've been uh, doing a series called Grace Upon Grace, and we have been kind of stuck on chapter 4 for a while. If you'll look at Roman numeral uh, 2 on the front page, you'll see the six titles, and we've been doing chapter 4 for uh, several weeks at this point. But the thing that I want to remind you of is that grace is a relational term. It comes through Jesus Christ. The law brought grace. Uh, Jesus Christ fully realized grace. And um, grace is always relational. So when we talk about the Word of God, we're not just talking about the inscripturated Word of God, but we're talking about the incarnated Word of God. Jesus Christ, the living Word of God, is still reigning. He's still sitting at his Father's right hand. He's still speaking. He's still raising the dead. He's still uh, casting out demons. He's still doing, uh, proclaiming the gospel to the poor. And he's doing all of that through the Holy Spirit. Who will, uh, Next Sunday, we will actually move on to chapter 5, no matter how much we get through today of chapter 4, and talk about the spirit of grace. But grace comes to us through our actively being motivated by grace in the first place to seek grace. Philippians 2, Paul says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God that's at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason you can actually seek God, the reason you can participate in the traditional and biblical Christian disciplines of scripture reading and prayer and fasting and worship and confessing our sins to one another and all the all the different Christian disciplines that help us uh, plug into grace is because God already drew you into his kingdom by his grace. And it's his grace that motivates us. So you seek grace to seek more grace. And grace is a free gift, but it's much like a, a, a gift you get at Christmas that both needs unwrapped and some assembly is required. It's free. But free doesn't mean it's cheap, nor does it mean you only receive it passively. We actively receive grace, and grace comes to us primarily through three inextricably intertwined delivery systems. In other words, you cannot separate these, but they, we can separate them conceptually to help us understand them. But grace is delivered just like when you turn on the water at your house. Uh, you don't think much about it when the cup fills up, but that water came to you through a very complex delivery system that includes some city harvested it, perhaps cleansed it some, probably less than federal standards, but uh, pumped it up to a water tower, and that water tower is considerably higher than your sink. And the only reason water comes out is because the water goes down the pipe uh, of that water tower into the pipes underneath the city streets and into your home and in the basement through a water meter. And there's a series of pipes that go back up through your home. And water always seeks its own level. And that water tower is higher than your sink. And that's why the water flows out when you open the valve. Likewise, grace to us comes to us through a complex delivery system that includes the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And all three of these tools of grace have been the object of much spiritual attack in the last 150 years and have all been twisted and perverted so that we there's considerable work to be done to capture a more biblical approach to all three of them. So today we're going to finish up looking at the things that have caused us to lose the scriptures. 
uh, starting after the Civil War, starting with what was called the fundamentalist uh, modernist controversy, had a meeting with two pastors yesterday, and we were actually talking about this. Um, much, many ideas, both from the both from the modernist, but also from the fundamentalist evangelical side of things, many ideas were introduced that were brand new ideas and that added up to being reductionist ideas. That is, they reduced the fullness of Scripture. So uh, what we're kind of doing today is looking at the fact that whether you are an, you know, whether you have the idea, one of the ideas that developed was an anti-intellectual approach to Christianity. And so if you have the idea, oh, I just want Scripture alone, or it's not, you know, I just want to worship and prayer, you know, studying is not that important, which most Christians have that idea today. You rarely meet a Christian that really takes seriously the study of, of the Word of God. And, and that's because we've all been influenced by paradigms that are, that are in the Christianity around us. No, none of us have not been influenced by the church of our day. And so when we um, a, a less than intellectual approach to the uh, scriptures is actually part of, a, part of a, uh, the thing that we're up against. Now, if you'll flip over to page two and you look at uh, Roman numeral, uh, let's see, that's Roman numeral six starts at the bottom of page one, but then uh, A, B, C, D, E. If you look at point E, these are modern reductionist paradigms, which we've all drunk of, that uh, influence very much what we get out of Scripture. Whether you know it or not, you come to the Scripture with ideas that you've developed from other Christians uh, Christian radio, Christian television, the, the, the church that led you to Christ, whatever, every one of us has been infected by these ideas. And, you, you know, whether you, whether you think you can just bury your head in the sand or not, you cannot. They, these ideas have influenced what you will actually interpret when you read your Bible. And they will cause you to miss the message of your Bible. One of the things I've come to really understand as I've diligently studied these things the last 39 years is that when we read our Bible, we are predisposed to miss much of the message of it by both the secular culture around us and, unfortunately, by the church culture around us. Now, we've looked a little bit at uh, reason versus experience, point E1. We looked at pietism, and we've looked at anti-intellectualism and anti-history. So we're going to cover the rest of the list. So that I get to it, I'm going to jump down to point nine for a minute. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about anti-supernaturalism. Now, anti-supernaturalism is, uh, in its most extreme form, is called cessationism. Cessationism is the idea that God doesn't heal today, God doesn't cast out demons today, God doesn't baptize people in the Holy Spirit today, uh, people don't speak in tongues or prophesy today. And these things are, are not to be widely distributed among every Christian in the church today. Now, that idea first emerged in the time of Jeremiah the prophet when many of the false prophets and religious hypocrites of his day began to have a, a, a mindset that said, we know that God did mo miracles through Moses and Elijah, but who the heck is Amos, Joel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, we, we don't know who these guys are. And if you study the, the major and minor prophets, you'll see that their message was quite opposed by the people of Israel. 
that was a big part of Jesus' message, and especially in Matthew, but in all three of the Olivet Discourses. You have rejected every prophet that I've ever sent to you, yet you say if we had lived in our father's times, we would have received the prophets. Uh, and Jesus says that's, that's nonsense because they actually build the tombs of the prophets. So... Um, that idea continued to foster, and during the time that's called the intertestament period between Malachi and the coming of Christ from 396 uh, BC until about uh, 4 to 0, no one knows exactly the year Jesus was born. But when Christ arrives on the scene, the religious leaders of his day have no room in their mind for his healings his miracles, his raising people from the dead, they say, we know God spoke to Moses and we know God spoke to Elijah, but these things have ceased. God spoke to Moses to confirm the importance of the law. And so once the law and the co- it was, was given and the covenant was made with Israel and Israel became the people of God, God ceased to do those demonstrations of his glory. Now that idea was the idea of the Pharisaical party And it was the idea of the Sadducee party. Now, they had it for different reasons. The Sadducees were roughly equivalent to the the modernist controversy, to the liberal Christianity of today that says, we don't know if the scriptures are actually historically accurate and and the idea of Noah and an ark, how crazy, and and all that kind of thing. We, We know that a later redactor put these in, and of course, Daniel must be wrong because how could Daniel have accurately predicted the coming of the Medes and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans four or 500 years before they came. That's, we, that's, we know that, because what they have is a, a priori, they've assumed miracles don't happen. So somebody must've added that to Daniel's writings later. But you see, they're making, they're not making that assumption based on the historical documentation. They're making it on their pseudoscientific commit, commitment against the Holy Spirit and against his power. Likewise, the Pharisees of Jesus' day did the same thing. Now, as the church was birthed, God continued to do the same things through the apostles. And as John show, showed us in his series he's doing on Act, that spread from the apostles to the next wave of leadership. Some, some believe that Acts 6 was the beginning of a ministry called the deacon. And uh, guys like Stephen and Philip, Philip began to do great and mighty works. If you read Acts 8, Philip, who's not one of the original 12, is in Samaria proclaiming the gospel. And it says there was healings and deliverances. Many were being healed. Many had evil spirits cast out of them. And much rejoicing was happening in that city. So God was still doing these things. The scripture gives us guidance that, of course, if miracles are really from God, they're to be redemptive. They're to give glory to his name, glory to the name of Christ, to Jesus' name, and so forth. But uh, God continued to do these things. Well, in the second century, an idea began to emerge that was not that popular, but but, uh, became by the fourth century became somewhat popular, that uh, God did those things only in the days of of the apostles, to bear witness to the newness of that the church was now the people of God and that the gospel was uh, the, the entrant way into the kingdom of God and that the gospel, although it was the same gospel as, as the Old Testament gospel, it was now much more clear 
and it was more fully revealed and so forth. And so God bore witness to his word by doing the miracles through the early church, but now he didn't need that anymore. Now that idea was pretty small at first and it began to grow, but by the fourth century, it was the predominant idea among most Christians. The famous St. Augustine, who's probably the only Christian that both the Catholics and the Protestants claim is he's one of us. Every Protestant quotes St. Augustine. Every Catholic quotes St. Augustine. And St. Augustine was initially a cessationist. He, was, he said that mer- these miracles have stopped. They were only for the day of the apostles. Somebody challenged him on that. He began to do an extensive study. And he came to understand that miracles were happening throughout the Roman Empire in the name of Christ in many churches. And they were well-documented and irrefutable. If you want to study that, there's a great uh, book called uh, Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which are documented cases throughout all 20 centuries of church history of powerful healings, prophecies, people being raised from the dead, demons being cast out, and so forth, that have happened among all sorts of groups of Christians of all sorts of flavors in all sorts of uh, geographical locations. So the idea of cessationism is kind of a, a religious idea. It tends to be among religious conservatives, and it tends to be that God did these miracles in the past. Uh, silly enough, I, I think I'm going to take time to, to read this to you. Silly enough, the modern idea of sensationism is totally based on uh, taking a, one scripture and ripping that scripture completely out of its context and changing its meaning. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. After he, Paul gives us from verse 4 through verse 8, he gives us the definition of love. He says, love never fails, but the Greek word means it never ceases. Love always ceases. But if there are, is, but if prophecy, that will be done away. If your Bible says if there are gifts of prophecy, notice that, that, that there are gifts is in italics. That means the, that the translators added those words to make the English sound better to your ears. But it literally reads, but if prophecy, they will be done away. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, the cessationists say that the perfect coming was the coming of the scriptures that were, that were closed by the end of the apostles writing them. Uh, he goes on to say, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. See, Scripture always needs to be interpreted in its context. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. When will we see face to face? When the apostles are done writing? Do you see Christ face to face when you're worshiping on Sunday morning? Does Jesus appear in the flesh at the front of every church in the world as his name is being lifted up? He appears by his spirit, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But, but now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. He's referring back to the verses he just said, just as I have also been fully known. So now abide in faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. So the, the perfect will come after you die when you're in the presence of God you will be perfectly in the presence of God. Or after the second coming of Christ, if any of us might happen to be alive by then, uh, 
you, then, then we will be perfectly in the presence of God. We won't see Christ dimly as in a mirror anymore. We'll see him face to face. Now, I enjoy talking to all of you on the phone, but I'd much rather sit down face to face, right? Uh, any of you who uh, have ever courted, I know a few of you have courted long distance. It's one thing to talk on the phone and to email and to text and instant message. But if you could Skype, that's better, right? <laughs> but if you can go beyond Skype and actually be present with each other, isn't, isn't that even better? So, that's, so, of course, what it, prophecy, prophecy is when the Holy Spirit moves on a member of the congregation like James Davis, and he says, James Davis, uh, tell Tony I love him. Now, of course, because we see in a mirror dimly, we need that. I have been encouraged by many of you who have, a, have had a prophetic word for me to encourage us to continue on in this difficult ministry, right? So we need that because we see in a mirror dimly. But when, when we're all in the presence of God, of course prophecy will be done. So Because prophet means to speak forth on behalf, to hear from God and to speak forth on his behalf to another. So why would I say, hey, Edwin, would you let Sidney know that I really like his uh, polo, navy blue polo shirt with a little white and crest there? And Edwin would say, well, he heard you because he's right there. So why should I tell him? Okay, of course prophecy will cease. Tongues is given as a, as a prayer language first and foremost to edify and build up our spirits and so forth. We won't need that after we go to heaven. So of course, you know the idea that these things ceased uh, when the when the per, that the perfect was the coming of Scripture. That is completely taking an argument you've already believed in, slapping a scripture on it, and ripping out the context of interpretation to fit your scheme. That's a little bit. You, you know, I actually heard a preacher once tell why Jesus must have made grape juice at the wedding of Cana, and uh, because he had an a priori commitment to wine is evil. Even though the word oino occurs throughout the New Testament and Jesus drank oino, and, uh, which we get wine from, he, the, this pastor reasoned, well, we know wine is evil. Well, first of all, that's an assumption he's making that the scriptures don't make. And then secondly, he's slapping on to that interpretation. We know that Jesus can only do good. Therefore, Jesus made grape juice at the wedding of Cana. That's impeccable logic it's actually good logic if my first assumptions were correct. <laughs> but since my first assumptions weren't scriptural, I fit my belief into scripture by changing the meaning. And that's done all the time. That's what we're talking about in these, these paradigms that have reduced the scripture for us. Now, the, the truth of the matter is that when Jesus appeared in his hometown, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, and that caused a lot of the people in his hometown to have a lot of unbelief. And it says Jesus was not able to do many miracles there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people because of their unbelief. The, there are three reasons we don't see more miraculous in our churches today. Now, we have had some miraculous in our, in our church uh, Tony being set free from Tourette's syndrome was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. That was a wonderful, loving miracle from God given to a member of our church. God does great things for people to, still to this day. He's Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Either he rose people from the dead and cast out demons and he healed the sick, 
then and therefore does it now, or he didn't do it then. To have the cessationist idea is to say Jesus did all those things then, but he doesn't do it anymore. There's no scriptural reason to believe that. It's absurdity. And, the, and it's based in three wrong conceptions. Number one, after the Enlightenment, Western culture began to be extremely skeptical and full of unbelief. And like grace needs to be unwrapped, God's miracles need a willing channel. So when we're raised in a culture where we're skeptical about everything, they always say that skepticism is one of the advanced stages of decline in any culture. Look at the Roman Empire. When you're raised in a culture that is committed to skepticism, you're, you are brainwashed all your life to doubt the miracles of God. And that is stronger in our mindsets, even after we're born again and filled with God's spirit. We are in a journey out of that unbelief. We're in a journey individually out of it, and we're in a journey collectively as a church out of that. And as we ask God to forgive us of unbelief, as we repent of it, as we don't change the scriptures to meet our experience, as we cry out to God and say, Lord, our experience is far below your scriptures, God will be gracious and continue to grant us more and more of his supernatural manifestations. Uh, secondly, of course, is the whole idea that it, at the end of Mark 16, after Jesus said, "These things will the, those who believe in my name, they'll cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. they'll raise the dead, and so forth." It says that they went out and proclaimed everywhere the word, and God worked with them, confirming the word with the signs and wonders. The reason I have spent so many years, and and John and I are so focused on all the missing elements of the biblical gospel in, in comparison to the American gospel. By the way, I just posted an article on my Facebook about that last night. It's a little bit intellectual and hard to understand, but it's worth the, worth the uh, trouble. The reason uh, that we, um, one of the reasons that we harp on this whole idea of restoring the King Jesus gospel, the biblical gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, uh, as opposed to the Americanized gospel, is God won't confirm a word that's not his. God will confirm his word of the kingdom of God. And the closer we approximate the word of the apostles, the more God will do it in signs and wonders. Thirdly, there's this attitude in American Christianity that we can only live what's called friendship or lifestyle evangelism. That is, we just have a nice yard and a nice house and nice kids and, and a nice dog and, and we wash our car more and we're just and we have a nice smile and we look like the Wrigley Spearmint Gum Girl and 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 everyone's gonna ask us, well, why why are you guys so together? <laughs> well, the fact is, uh, God radically changed me from that perspective. He had already changed me, and we were in the dorms sharing the gospel in uh, 1981. And I'd been sharing the gospel with my best friend uh, the first year or so I was a Christian. And then I just said, well, he's not open. I'll just wait till he sees how, all the great changes in my life and he asks me. Well, one night I got a phone call from my brother telling me he and my friend Frank Pavlik were uh, driving 
their car 80 some miles an hour uh, the wrong way against the traffic on a foreign lane highway because they were so drunk and so high that they uh, hit another car head on and he was killed instantly. And he had run out of time to ask me why my new life was so together in comparison to his. The truth of the matter is all through the New Testament, the Bible tells us to go. Hopefully you're all familiar with Romans 10, where it says, how can someone believe unless they hear? And how can someone hear unless they speak? And how can someone speak unless they go? If you need to feel sent, we have a prayer time after the church. And if uh, I'm not on the prayer team, the, hopefully, the reason I'm not is because they could pray over you and you can feel sent. Because if it were me, I'd pray over you and probably kick you in the butt and say, go, you're sent. You, you, the scripture says, go, go over and over. You're sent, go. You don't need a written invitation. You already got a written invitation to go. And the truth of the matter is we wait for them to come to us when the Bible clearly commands us to go to them. If you've never gone out sharing the gospel, I, I pity you for, for lacking that experience. It's wonderful. You will see firsthand the warfare between and the clash between two kingdoms when you go out to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ and his accomplished works and the and so forth in his kingdom and, and the church is the instrument of his kingdom. And as you share these things with people, God will meet you supernaturally to confirm his word. As you're sharing, say, is there anything I can pray for you about? It's even better when you tell them what it is they need to be prayed for about because the Holy Spirit will give you words of knowledge and words of wisdom right there on the spot. We have to go. So, um, the thing I want to leave us with on this and move off of point nine here is simply this. There is no reason scripturally to believe that God wants to do anything less in terms of raising the dead, restoring the, the widow's son, Elijah and Jesus both restored uh, widow's sons to them, their only sons. He wants to do the same in our day. And He's looking for willing vessels to step into that room and walk with him. And we have to repent regularly before God and say, forgive us for our unbelief. Just like the, I love the story, uh, the, the, that is the gospel account, I hate the word story, of the man whose son had demons that were throwing him into the, the fire. And Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The other disciples were unable to cast uh, the demons out of the kid, and Jesus rebuked the disciples. If you notice, the main thing Jesus rebukes the disciples for throughout the Gospels is unbelief. He hardly ever rebukes them for anything else. He, you know, they said, Jesus, we weren't able to cast the demons out. Now, these are the same guys who'd already gone out in Luke chapter 10 and done all this stuff. But they'd let the religious culture and the unbelieving culture settle back on them so much that they couldn't step out and help this man. So first, Jesus rebukes them. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long am I going to have to put up with you knuckleheads? He didn't have knuckleheads. That's my, forgive me, Lord. But uh, it's a little bit like Moses striking the rock twice. That's why, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the, but he said, you know, how long do I have to put up with you guys? And then he says, uh, do you believe I'm able to do this to the man? I love the man's response. It's the most biblical response there could ever be. He says, I do believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. 
Now, we have to cry out to God every day that. That is the main, should be the main prayer of Grace Christian Fellowship. Lord, we do believe. We want to be faithful disciples of Jesus. We want to take up our cross. We want to proclaim your gospel. We want to step into the power of the Holy Spirit, but help our unbelief. Help our inconsistencies. Help our double-mindedness. Help our waywardness. Save us, Jesus. Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. All right, let's jump back up. We started to talk about dispensationalism and covenantalism. I'll just review real quick that dispensationalism was an idea that was started by a guy named J.N. Darby. It was popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible. By the, it uh, was introduced into the evangelical church. Darby was kind of a quasi-cult, left-off-the-charts kind of figure. Uh, by the 1890s, the evangelicals began to pick it up as mainstream evangelical thinking. It so thoroughly swept evangelicalism that it was the thinking of evangelicalism by the 1920s. And the, it was popularized in a, in a work called the Schofield Reference Bible, which uh, you can still buy today and is still used. So if you have one, burn it and get a good Bible. So um, just kidding, maybe. It continued to be popularized by Dakes and Ryrie from the 1890s to 1920s. Hey, Sid, could you get me some cold water? Because all I have is ice, which I don't want to be crunching on while I'm talking. So, um, or Sam, you can do it since you're closer to the aisle. The, the, the basic ideas of dispensationalism are this, that there's a discontinuity between the covenants, that God in the days of Adam uh, Noah, Abraham, and then Moses, and then finally David, changed the way he mediated salvation to men. That they were saved by work, by the covenant of works, where we're saved by a covenant of grace. But Jesus and Paul both made clear that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. All the saints of the what we call the old covenant, which is really only part of it, is the old covenant. We should really call it the Hebrew Scriptures, would be more accurate. But what we call the Old Covenant, all the saints of that Old Covenant were saved by faith in the promises of God, in the atonement that was to be accomplished. David, if you read the account of his life, I, I assure you he was not saved by works. He's called a man after God's heart after he committed murder and then engaged in a great, or committed adultery and then murdered a guy as part of the cover-up. <laughs> and after that, he's called a man after God's heart because God granted him real repentance and not remorse. Study the difference between Saul's remorse and David's repentance, and it, it will guide you in how to walk with God. Study the difference between Peter's repentance and Judas's remorse, and it'll guide you in how to walk with God. So... Everyone was always saved by grace. There's a continuity between the covenants because Hebrews 13.20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. The new covenant that we call the new covenant is only new in the sense that it brings us newness of life, but it's an eternal covenant between the Father and the Son that historically was enforced with his incarnation, his sinless life, his miracles, his preaching, his disciple-making, his uh, willingly going to the cross, 
and going through Gethsemane and then to the cross and his, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, and, and then the coronation ceremony, just like Saul always pulled oil uh, on the, the heads of the kings. God the Father gave him all authority in heaven and earth and poured oil on his head, and that oil poured into the earth, and it was called the day of Pentecost. And that oil is still flowing just the same as it's always flowed because he's still the king. It will stop if he ever stops being king, but he's already promised us he never will. And he's not just the king of your prayer life or your inner personal holiness. He's the king of the church. He's the king of nations. He's the king of economies. He's the king of social justice issues. He raises up nations and tears down nations according to his sovereign will. He upholds all things. Every atom in your body is being presently held together by a mystical force that is known as King Jesus. One of the greatest mysteries in modern science is what holds the atoms together. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that, that all things are held together by Jesus. He's presently holding your every atom of your body together. And if he wasn't, you're, you would disintegrate in an instant. Now, this idea of discontinuity between the covenants became known as rightly dividing the word of truth. The problem is, is they never put it together. So in the extreme forms of dispensationalism, the Old Testament's not really important because we're living in the New Testament. And if you don't think it has impact, just go try to figure out how many Christians actually know the Old Testament. Very few. Because they've been raised in churches that say it's not as much the Word of God as the New Testament is the Word of God. Now, although they say it is, the, the teachings undermine that. Uh, another basic tenet of dispensationalism is that Israel and the church have no relation. Okay? But the whole point of Matthew is that Jesus said to the Israelites, I'm done with you. Your temple is being left to you, Ichabod, without, you know, without my presence. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to a nation that produces the fruit of it. I will build my church. Those are all quotes from Matthew between chapter 16 and 23. His whole, the whole point of Matthew is a covenant lawsuit against the Israelites to say, I have I birthed you as a people. I've protected you as a nation. You've killed one prophet after another prophet. You've refused to obey me. You have sent a delegation to say, we will not have this man rule over us. And I am going to give the kingdom to a people who want to be ruled over by Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's the, base, the basic posture of the church today is personal, uh, inward, pietistic holiness that is basically saying, I will not have Jesus rule over the other parts of my life. I'm going to pick and choose what areas I want Jesus to be Lord in. You ask any employer, even sometimes Christian employers, and they will tell you Christians make the worst employees. You ask any banker what's the number one industry that doesn't pay its loans back, it's the churches. I work in the banking industry, standard in, in industry classifications. Churches don't pay their bills more than any other kind of business. 
The church is a, at, at large today is saying we will not have this man to rule over us. Now the truth of the matter is all the promises of God that were given to Israel were transferred to the church. And the church is the new Israel of God. And in the days of Jesus, the Israelites were expecting a political Messiah to come with a military objective and establish the kingdom of David again in a geopolitical way and throw out the enemies of the Romans. They had no room in their mind for a king who was coming to throw out the enemy of sin and the enemy of Satan and his demons and that was going to build a kingdom from the ground up, from the inside out, that was going to burst all boundaries of geopolitical content. Their expectations were low, so low that they missed their very Messiah in their midst, proclaiming the kingdom and raising the dead and healing the lepers and so forth, and they had no room in their mindsets for him. Today, we have a thing that's grown out of dispensationalism called dispensational premillennialism, which was also invented in the 1800s. It was first invented by a cult called the Millerites, who actually were based in Ohio. It was picked up by evangelicals after the Civil War, and by the 1890s to the 1920s, it became the predominant mindset. Today, 95% of Bible-believing Christians are dispensational premillennialists. They are expecting the world will get darker and darker and the church will be more and more defeated and the world will go grow sicker and sicker until Christ comes back in a geopolitical way, splits the Mount of Olives, stands, stands there, humbles all the kings of the earth with his angels conquering them by swords and so forth and sets up a geopolitical kingdom in, that he'll reign from Israel through a thousand years. Not only is that uh, not understanding how to do hermeneutics and how to do exegesis of Scripture and so forth, read a book on our foundational list called Paradise Restored if you want to get an introduction to that. It, it was the expectations of the people of God in Jesus' day. It's the expectations of the people of God in our day, and it's actually what's caused the loss of our culture. Our culture since the Civil War has gone from probably the most Christianized culture that the world has ever seen to a culture where the Supreme Court this week not only struck down uh, two states' laws that said uh, that prohibited gay marriage, but they said anyone who would support gay marriage or, or propose a law like this or vote for a law like this is a hater. So that means if you are a Christian and you are not necessarily in favor of homosexuality, and of course you know our posture is to, is to be involved with homosexuals, to help them come out of that lifestyle, to, to help them come to Christ, it's no more perverse than guys sleeping around with girls every three times a week or, or being addicted to internet pornography or so forth. But the reason God wants to set you free is until you become the way you were created to be, which you can only do by becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus, you will be miserable. In fact, one of the ways you can really understand history is when, is when people are, are shouting out a certain word, it's because they don't have that. The reason the, the word gay has been appropriated because most people stuck in that lifestyle are anything but happy. And we want to have compassion on them. We want to help liberate them. 
But it has now been defined by the Supreme Court of the United States that if you have compassion on someone who's sexually addicted, heterosexually or homosexually, you're a hater. And you can, it, it won't be long before people who have that position start to be jailed for it. That's coming in our generation, believe it. So we, what has happened is because of these ideas, the church has retreated progressively from reality over the last 110 or 150 years. And as we've retreated, we've given up the culture because power is a vacuum. And if you, if you read, study military strategy, which there's much of it in, in what we call the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the reason two, two armies can clash together and it says one, in, one had 38 casualties while the other had 23,000 casualties is because when two armies clash together, the first one to sound the retreat, panic, and run is the one that gets mopped up. It's really easy to win when you're stabbing them in the back, chasing them down. And the church began to take that posture 150 years ago, and we have presided over uh, the, the, the fastest secularization and the fastest decline of a culture, with possibly the exception of the book of Judges and maybe the late stages of the Roman Empire, that the, the mankind has ever seen. We've gone from, the, you know, in the 1900s, there was no government social welfare. None. Not done by cities, states, or federal government. It was all done by churches and families and private businesses. No culture in the world has ever had its social welfare needs met as 19th century America through those private organizations. Biblically, those, it's private institutions that should be doing social justice. It's not able to be done by the government because the government messes it up. Just think about how well they do the post office. So, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's the idea of, pre, of dispensationalism. And then its, its child, theologically, was called dispensational premillennialism. Some people call it pessimillennialism. But again, it's the idea that, you know, like in the 1960s, there was a guy who wrote a book that's, that was called The Late Great Planet Earth. And his main theme was how wonderful Satan was. The, the Escapist uh, Left Behind series is the number one selling Christian books in Christian bookstores, and it's all about how Satan's going to beat the crap out of all of us, and the church is a wimp, and there won't be that many Christians left, and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. Jesus said, occupy until I come. The Bible says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies are a footstool for your feet. Who is the feet of Jesus? You are. Jesus is going to stay at the Father's right hand until some measure of, of crushing, Romans 16, crushing Satan under the feet of the body of Christ has been accomplished through all the earth. The church needs to regather and face the battle quit, and quit running from it. And, and the kingdom will proceed line upon line, precept upon precept, by leaps and bounds. Uh, we talked a little bit, I think, about antinomianism, but antinomianism is the idea that also grows out of dispensationalism that the law is not important because we live in a covenant of grace. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, 
By the way, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the foundational teachings. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read carefully the first few verses of Matthew 5, it says, Jesus' disciples came to him on the mountain, and he told them. He, it's the foundational teaching of what it means to be a disciple or follower of Christ. And he starts with 13 verses of your attitudes. They're called the Beatitudes. That's the most important foundational teaching of what it means to be a Christian. The very next thing he says, which is the next important, is don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to put them in the force. That is, he came to write them on the inner desire of your heart and empower you by the Holy Spirit to live him because those who are trying to do it as an outward standard written on human tablets with their tablets of stone in their heart, trying to do it by their own works and approaching righteousness as if, if, it, as if it's by effort, could never achieve it. And he's going to give it to you as a gift that you, you have to continually unwrap and you have to, con blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but it's never derived from you, nor is it ever achieved from you. It's already been achieved for you. Reach out and unwrap it.